for the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you uh, here for today's show. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've done a number of other things. and I've even written some books. And today is my day, and I'm going to talk about uh, the subject of the day. But first, uh, Glenn and Tom need to introduce themselves. So, Glenn, why don't you go ahead, and then Tom, and it's back to me. Glenn Sunshine. I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, retired history professor, uh, and author. As a matter of fact, today is the uh, the day we're recording is the day that my most recent book shows up at Amazon. All right, all right, that's Excellent. a great book Excellent. too. All right, Tom. Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, and one of the places is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Great, great stuff. Anyway, so uh, the topic for the day is actually. Uh, been inspired by the fact that I'm speaking at the Bitcoin conference. And, you know, a person might wonder what in the world does a pastor have to do or to say to a bunch of Bitcoin investors? Well, let me just first of all say that this conference is happening in Miami and it's going to be the uh, the 15th and 16th of May. And Bitcoin is a subject that I've uh, had interest in for a while. And uh, I was really pleased to be asked to, to, to participate and to speak. And if you'd like to learn a little more about the conference and about the, the nature of it, and uh, then you can go ahead and follow the link in the show notes, the Thank God for Bitcoin conference, which is being, uh, which is being held just uh, two days before the great big conference, uh, where people who have no interest in Christianity or maybe uh, <laughs> are just interested in Bitcoin will be, uh, you know, attending anyway. So what got me thinking about this is, uh, is the fact that I was invited. I didn't volunteer. I didn't, uh, say, Hey, look at me. I'd like to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, instead some, some, uh, folks came to me and said, would you like to come in and uh, speak? And I thought to myself initially, um, well, the question is, can I thank God for Bitcoin? And I said, after thinking about it a little bit, sure, I can thank God for Bitcoin. I think there are some some things about it that are really worth considering and maybe even um, getting involved with. So uh, with that out of the way, then I thought, you know, why are they coming to me? Well, then it occurred to me that really this is what I should be asked to do, this sort of thing, uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh and so should every other pastor and any person who is a theologian. Uh, we should be thinking about things that maybe people don't normally associate with God uh, or the disciplines of pastoral ministry and theology. And the reason I'm saying that is because Thomas Aquinas uh, stated, you know, in the 13th century that theology is the queen of the sciences. And so I'd like to reflect on what it means to be a generalist as a, as a person who represents God, who either is, you know, uh, practicing the discipline of theology or is a pastor and how this all kind of plays out and how it all holds together and why it actually makes sense. So with the, with this topic of the day introduced, I was wondering maybe if you, either of you had any sort of initial things you'd like to say about the subject. Well, yeah, I will jump in right away on this. It, it, when we're talking about the sciences in a medieval context, that does not mean what the word means today. Right. 
Um, the, our word science comes from the Latin scantia, uh, which literally just means a field of knowledge, uh, or specifically a field of knowledge that has a methodology attached to it. Um, our use of the word science gets reduced in the, well, really the 19th century uh, to limited to the natural sciences because of the assumption that the only thing that you can, that really qualifies as knowledge is facts about the physical world. It's, it's what we call the sciences. Okay. But in the Middle Ages, anything that had any, any discipline was a science, as long as there was some sort of methodology attached to studying it. It wasn't just completely haphazard. So... When we're talking about theology as the queen of the sciences, it's the integration point of every of every subject that's out there. Don't think about it in terms of our modern use of the word science. That'll 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 send you in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's a great that's a great uh, bit of history in, in in terms of how to think about this. So, Tom, any thoughts? Yeah, it's also that one of the things I think. It, We'll use Aquinas for an example since he was mentioned. But one of the things he was talking about with theology is he he wrestles through that question: Is theology a scientia or uh, or sapientia? Uh, you know, field of of wisdom. You know, knowledge really closer to yeah. wisdom, knowledge closer to kind of just the sciences. Um, and in, although he goes kind of back and forth with it, I think ultimately wisdom is the higher aspects of theology because you are dealing with as as glenn noted you noted the the integrating factor the higher knowledge which brings those together in a in a, in a way that isn't just a unity uh, unifying the field of knowledge although i do think there is a significant place for that um but really gives at the end of the day their justification um because i mean one of the first things about theology is is it's dealing with with the first truth that is required for any other science to take off and run. And although this gets often hidden or tucked away in the modern world, uh, without a reality there to be dealt with and some knowledge of that reality, you know, is ultimate, um, how, how do you know that everything else you're up to uh, even has any sense about it? So that's Aquinas's first point, is God is first truth, and then in light of God, um, all other things. And so those other sciences are free to roam where they will as they pursue their own ends, but there are real ends for them to pursue, and God, of course, is, is the ultimate. Yeah, and this, of course, brings up the problem that we find in uh, the academy today, and that is we don't have a university any longer. We've got a multiversity where everybody's just sort of like going in different directions and pursuing different objectives, and there's no real uh, aspiration to bring it all together, no uh, integration, as we've talked about. Now, why does uh, theology qualify? Why not just, th uh, you know, appeal to philosophy? Well, I think uh, there are some good reasons for this. I think, first of all, because we're talking about the creator. So the one uh, who gave uh, us the world that we live in, uh, within which we pursue the sundry disciplines that we see pursued and, you know, in terms of the pursuit of knowledge and, and different fields, well, there would be no world <laughs> or the, without <laughs> God making it yeah. for those disciplines to be pursued in. So, uh, so the creator, uh, had some, uh, uh, intention for the creation. And as we pursue these various disciplines, uh, these need to be brought back to the, to the, 
the purposes for which uh, the world has been created, and then the end for which the world is directed, which is the glory of God. And then, of course, we can think eschatologically as well with regard to new heaven, new earth, and so on and so forth. But it, it makes sense, therefore. And, and we even see it in the pomp and circumstance, at least in, in schools where the tradition is still followed of, of lining up in the order of the disciplines. So you have the queen of the sciences whose hood is scarlet and, uh, and, and or purple, uh, and who is at the at the front of the line? So, if you if you think about pomp and circumstance, even at a secular university, what you're seeing is a reenactment of a medieval uh, procession. Yeah. In a, in a, and and so each of the disciplines follow. That's why you know the newer disciplines have such awful colors because all the good colors were taken. <laughs> Uh, you know, in the medieval era, <laughs> and I can't remember them all, but if I remember correctly, uh, you know, you know, philosophy is pretty cool. You know, you know, languages, you know, the, the literary arts got some great colors, but when you get down to like business administration, you know, you're dealing with like the leftovers, your chartreuse, you know, fuchsia, you know, <laughs> you know, brown, exhaust pipe <laughs> that <kind> gray. Of... <laughs> That's right. That's right. But 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 when you see the pomp and circumstance, you're you're, you're actually seeing an embodiment or a physical expression of how it was understood historically, yeah. and really the way it should still be understood today. So. Um, now, I, I do think that there are some just practical challenges. There are certain questions that are nat naturally arise. So if you're a theologian and your task is to integrate, how much do you need to know when it comes to the mm -hmm. disciplines that you're uh, being told you need to work with? So you, you, both of you are academics, you know, and uh, Glenn, you were an historian. Maybe you feel appalled every once in a while when a theologian steps into your territory and makes some statements that just have no basis in fact <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, and then Tom, you're the theologian who does the tre trespassing, <laughs> you know, so how does, how does this all work in your, in your Hopefully own, in your own a, little, a little historically informed. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to point out that as a historian, I trespass in the realm of theology far more than the other way around. Um, <laughs> Now, what, what, what I'm struck by is that all of this, you know, with the work I did with Chuck Colson, all of this is another way of talking about worldview. You know, the, the point being that your worldview is the, the, the lens through which you view reality. And the argument that we were always making about a biblical or a Christian worldview is that it gives you a comprehensive vision of reality in a way of integrating all of that under God. Now, theologians take this in a particular direction and push it in a, you know, in, I think, some important ways. But everybody really needs to view whatever it is that they're doing um, as, you know, whatever your profession, your, your family situation, education, all of those things need to be viewed through the lens of the gospel. The job of the pastor or theologian, it seems to me, is to be able to help people to do that. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean you need the expert knowledge in all fields. You know, the, if you were a Druid, that would have been the case in ancient Ireland, but it's impossible today. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But, but what, you, what you have, I think, are important principles 
important starting points to help people work through the implications of the gospel for themselves where they are. That, it seems to me, is the critical part. Yeah, the field of knowledge is just so vast now, particularly with each of the disciplines pursuing, you know, all of the different rabbit trails that they run down. Um, You know, we can blame the Germans, too with PhD and their approach, you know, research universities, et cetera. There's just no way that anyone can, can aspire to be the one who integrates all knowledge, but there still needs to be at least uh, the effort, uh, I think, uh, in the task of doing that. And, you know, what you're saying there, Glenn, I'm assuming is that if you're an historian and a believer, you ought to be doing that. Um, Not just leaving it to the theologian to do it. You ought to be, dabbling in theology yourself. Well, and and within my own field of history, I should be approaching history through the lens of the gospel. That should inform what I do and how I do it as a historian. Now, in my other hat with, with worldview and as an ordained minister and things like that, it's my job to help other people to do that in their fields. Right, right. Yeah. Now, uh, Tom, you're, you're the theologian. You're the guy who's uh, focused in your discipline on the doctrine of God uh, and on yeah. understanding as human beings uh, can uh, who God is, what God has done for us, etc. So that's a, a field in and of itself that yeah. needs to be um, developed and studied and, and advocated. Yeah. But then there's this other thing I brought up, sort of like the extra yeah. stuff that, you know, we're asking you to do. Yeah. Can, you, can you kind of work through that a little bit? Yeah, well, I, I, think you, I think what you say is very important right there. I mean, I remember my wife used to always say is, why, why, are there so, why is there such little demand in the church for theological consulting? Um, and I, and, and I, I've kind of reflected on that a lot um, because, uh, you know, not every minister has the time to be, even though they're informed and educated and trained, doesn't have have necessarily the time to to do, you know, do some of the, the heavy lifting that somebody who does that all the time does and, and share that so that it it reaches into the churches more than just through the seminary, through the pastor, because sometimes it never does. Um, but one of the things I think is, I mean, when you start to say, what is it, you know, the question I always asked is, where do we begin as Christians? What distinguishes us from everyone else? I mean, there's a lot of places where as human creatures sharing in society and everything else, we, we share worlds, right? Common objects of love. But we don't relate to those common objects the same way. We don't understand them the same way. We don't love them the same way. Um, and so the, one of the things Christianity is giving us um, from the gift of Christ in particular is insight into the nature of God that you can't get anywhere else, whatever similarities and differences. And it's that difference that actually sets the whole worldview difference on every other level. When you finally understand who God is in and of himself, as Christians understand it, you start to realize the true nature of creation. And then when you understand the true nature of creation, you start to understand its meaning, its significance, its purposes, Um, how to order things, how to value things. And then you understand the human being distinctively in in that, in the the role of their knowing and the way in which we have been given the task to name things, right, Um, and and order them in accord with, with, you know, 
God, you know, the na- their true natures and their purposes. And so I think theology um, isn't merely just about getting that information into a systematic book to help preaching, though it is that. Um, it is also about helping us integrate the whole of our lives through God is first truth and everything understood in relationship to that first truth understood that way. Yeah, I think that's huge because, you know, if if the object of my discipline is God and God has made all things, then every with every other thing, every other discipline needs to get its cues from theology. And that's what we're getting at. So when we talk about the queen of the sciences, it's not just a, another science alongside the rest. A queen has authority, <laughs> right? Now, the king, of course, is God, but the queen, the queen is, uh, you know, uh, married to uh, the object of her love, which is, you know, also the object of her study. And then she is representing him, uh, to the other disciplines. Another way to think about this too, I think that's helpful is every discipline, I think properly understood is a kind of theology. It's a, it's a, it's an, mm. an attempt to pursue the question. If it's properly, uh, pursued, uh, how does this glorify God? What does God have for it to do? You know, what is its nature? All of these different questions. So if, like, let's say my, my study is linguistics. Well, you know, those sorts of questions should inform my, my thinking, my study, and so forth, yeah. if there truly is a God. Now, if there's, if, now yeah. the assumption, of course, sort of the operative assumption in the academy today is that um, that's good, true for you, but not true for everybody. In other words, we've, we've taken it, We've uh, said that religious convictions are subjective and have no place in the academy. And what that tends to do is it, uh, over time, has brought us to a kind of materialist understanding of things in every area. We see that with linguistics. We see that with history. We see because what what are we trying to do? Uh, what are we, what what are what are the disciplines doing if they're materialist in character? They're trying to understand everything in, ter- in materialist terms. Uh, employing materialist language and so forth, so everything becomes a kind of science in the in the sort of empirical sense. Uh, it doesn't work. That's why we get ideology. But but in order for us to recover, I think uh, the, the 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 truth of the capital T, uh, we have to begin with God, and God has to has to be understood as being um, the authority over all of the disciplines. Okay, let, let, let me. You, you are correct, absolutely here. But but here here's the practical problem. How do you actually discern what is? Well, you you can assume God is is sovereign over all things, so everything that's going on is is ultimately tied to Him. But how do you discern what it is that God is doing through this? Right. That that ends up being the practical problem. So, for example. Um, whether disasters in the Bible are typically acts of God's judgment. Not absolutely always, but most of the time they're acts of God's judgment. And along with that, when they're not, it's still God trying to send a message to his people. Okay. Do we view weather that way today? How do we determine if the tornadoes that just went through Arkansas, is that a judgment of God? 
Is God trying to send us a message? What is happening there? Now, if it's California, I understand. But, but some of these, these other kinds of things, how, how do you figure out on a theological level what God is saying? Yeah, and, I, I, and because because that is is actually a pretty intractable problem, it's natural that people go toward more materialistic explanations of things. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and it certainly uh, is 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 a challenge. I think that the question is still a live one. I, I, in other in other words, what we've done is instead of saying this is a hard question to answer, we're going to uh, forgo trying to resolve uh, in any definitive way what is going on here. Uh, we just don't even ask. <laughs> right. Like, like, like when I, I remember when I was I was in the Northridge quake in, in California. Speaking of California, I was in the quake in the early '90s, and I remember flying out the very next morning. Well, actually, the quake hit in the morning. It was like four in the morning, and I was flying out like at eight or something like that. And so I got to the airport and I'm flying out and I see, you know, plumes of, of, of fire everywhere because of the broken gas mains. And, and on the way to the airport, there were windows shattered all over the place. And I could hear the tremor, the tremor in the voices, the tremors in the voices of the, of the people who were uh, reporting on the earthquake. And that told me it was pretty serious because if you got a person who's in Los Angeles and has been through a number of quakes, kind of shook up by this big shakeup. It's a pretty big one. And it was. Uh, but I remember as I was flew out of Los Angeles that morning and I saw that, that, that site saying to myself, no one here is asking, is God judging us? There, it's all about tectonic plates. It's all <laughs> about, um, you know, uh, making sure our buildings are uh, up to the challenge of being, you know, shaken by a a category, you know, eight or, you know, earthquake or whatever. Uh, nobody's asking, um, should we repent? I think that's, that's a question that say somebody would ask, they wouldn't be able to maybe answer it definitively. Uh, but they would at least ask it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because maybe you have in the kind of the more radical wing of the environmental movement, at least a recognition that human, human action is related in some way to, to the, you know, to weather and, and the like there is, there is, a, they connect it the, in the wrong place in my view, but they do recognize that, that, that humanity and the rest of things are connected that, for example, if humans do a lot of bad things out of greed to the world, there can be repercussions, and those can result in things like more harmful weather or or, or the like. You know, I'm using that as an example. Um, and and it, there's an interesting story in, in Scripture where I, I believe there's an earthquake that kills a family, and they go up to Jesus. Well, you know, who sinned, or you know, something along these lines. They're basically, he basically said, unless you repent, uh, this could like what you could likewise perish in the same way. So he doesn't, he doesn't unpack, he doesn't tell them, he doesn't let them get into a certain mystery. Um, I think, but I think theologically, I mean, when we look at the whole vision of scripture, we can. This is why I think that the kind of theological reflection on and ordering scriptures 
full vision is important, we can know some things. I mean, one is that the creation is created good and and when it is harmonious with the creator, will flourish and everything isn't going to be in competition with each other and destructive of the other. And so there's something about the creation that is out of sync at that point. There is a judgment sitting on it if it kills a family on their way to church, right? Um, if, if you're holding to it, it being, you know, now some could argue, you could get into philosophical debates, you know, but we're talking more from kind of reform camp. So you don't need to get into the, those kind of debates between, you know, what things have a certain range of freedom within their order and how God's sovereignty is related. I think you end up in problems there. But you can recognize that those things will be a part of a rebellious created order that is still held mercifully in place, even while those things are allowed to happen from time to time for what could be mysterious reasons now. Um, and still still not see that as kind of undermining the task of trying to understand something's uh, physical dimensions and causes, all the while recognizing that those don't, those don't finally, uh, it, they, they don't cover everything. Um, they don't, yeah. cover the mystery of natural e natural evil you know um and right. and and god doesn't really give us insight into the secret otherwise other than saying in the end it's it's going to be dealt with finally and and there is there is a healing of all that i think uh what i'd like to consider here then is that uh the pursuit of truth uh as the objective in terms of uh a kind of uh, theological integration of knowledge is something that we're that we're uh, aspiring to to bring about with the with the concession that there are all kinds of uh, there's all sorts of ambiguity. <laughs> there's there's lots of questions mm -hmm. that we're not going to be able to re to re to uh, resolve or address or answer to our satisfaction. But nevertheless, the quest is legitimate. Um, yeah, because if you lose that quest, well, and, and then just say, okay, everybody just kind of have at it, you end up with false integrations, uh, which is what ideology is. So, you know, ideology is a, is a reductive process of sort of boiling things down to a particular set of things that, that um, you use to explain um, history or the world or whatever, you know, an obvious example would be Marxism. Um, you know, what we're dealing with is an ideology in that case, which, uh, is materialist in character and therefore tries to explain moral and political and economic matters exclusively through the lens of the material and you know, sort of matter and energy and that and so forth. Uh, and you lose, uh, just, you know, not only do you lose sight of God, which is obvious uh, when you do that, yeah. but you lose sight of humanity. You know, you you don't you don't you don't even think about human beings uh, as rational creatures anymore, but just simply as self-interested workers. Um, and yeah. that's the kind of thing that happens when you lose uh, you lose theology as the queen of the sciences at that you know high level when it comes to the work of academics in the academy. Um, any thoughts on that? I do want to shift to the work of a pastor in a moment, but I want to spend a little more time on the work of uh, the academy. 
Well, you could you could put it this way. I mean, we don't in the in the Protestant world love the term Christian humanism, but I'm going to use that term in a in a more Christian sense. Is the humane pursued from a Christian angle in terms of knowledge and study and the like for those aspects of human flourishing um, can only be a consequence. In, in in terms of a, a healthy outcome from the theology that underwrites it. I mean, there. if you do not, we've mentioned it before, if you do not understand God the right way, then you're not going to understand the human being and what is good for it and, and bad for it the right way. Um, the, you, you can't because you don't know if you are, if we are in the image of God, we have to know something of that God to know in whose image we are and to orient all of our, our life and knowing. And then also, this is where they, the, you hit it right on the nose, is we can't boil it down, our knowledge, down to the easily explain the, the simplest. You know, Let's go the other direction from Occam. Um, we have to be pursuing wisdom, which is very formative of our images. So as we are pursuing God first and all things in that light, we're being formed into holistically into the kind of people that relate and know reality. And this isn't simply just kind of a, an encyclopedic knowledge. This is a way of discerning and being able to make judgments about things that incorporate those dimensions you can't get to on the surface of things. Yeah, I think that what happens sometimes uh, when we when we don't have the approach that we're talking about, is you simply have a kind of um, tendency to to let's say we're talking about um, geology. Uh, there's a there's a there's kind of a sense in which uh, geology is is something that um, we don't think about at all uh, from a Christian perspective until we see some kind of conflict with our understanding of, uh, the Bible, our interpretation of scripture, then suddenly we've got a problem. Whereas, uh, we should be approaching geology from the get go, uh, as Christians Mm -hmm. who are thinking about the world that God made and taking interest in the world that God, God has made so that we can glorify him for the wonders that we behold, but also, uh, there are useful things that we learn about the world uh, that, that we can use to serve our brothers and sisters in the church and just more generally the human human race. And But there, are, you, see, you see what I'm getting at. Our approach um, uh, is not uh, one uh, that I think is in keeping with the notion that Aquinas uh, is presenting to us when he talks about theology as the queen of the sciences. Anything you want to say, Glenn, as we, I want to make a transition to pastoral ministry, but I want to make certain that you get yeah. anything you want to say said. <laughs> yeah, just just one more quickie from a slightly different direction, but it's jumping off of what you said. I, I like the description of ideology as providing the new integrating source for people once they lose God. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, that, that I, I haven't thought of it quite in those terms, but that's exactly what it is doing. Um, it, yeah. it provides you with your explanation for everything. And, yeah. um, you know, so, so for people who are, are into sort of the political side of things, who have bought into a political ideology, what is the solution for everything? It's their political ideology, you know, yeah. Or, yeah. or it's CRT or it's fill in the blank. It can be right or left. It doesn't matter. Right. So I yeah. think that I think that was a that, that was a great observation there. 
Well, uh, what I'd like to do now is, uh, you know, probably the pastors out there are saying, well, that's great for the theologians and the academics. What's that have to do with me? <laughs> well, actually, it has everything to do with you, bud. So I think that getting back to this notion of specialization, um, a lot of pastors see themselves as specialists, um, and their specialty uh, is getting people to heaven. Okay, so, uh, you know, they're interested in the order salutis. We've got to make sure that we get that right. We're working with people. We're helping them understand, you know, what Scripture has to say uh, to them in order for them to believe the right things, do the right things, etc. All that's great. I'm, I'm not against any of that. Obviously, I do that. <laughs> but I don't think most pastors think of themselves as sort of the, the practitioners of uh, the integration of every sphere of life uh, into the disciples' sort of practices. You know, you know what I'm getting at? So does a pastor really think about himself as the guy who's working with his, his, his parishioners who are in business and helping them to think about their work as businessmen or businesswomen, uh, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the Christian faith? You know, how, how are you thinking about this? Is the pastor... Uh, actually doing that even even himself so there are lots of there are lots of things that you can kind of just be uh very i guess uh well you you can kind of have a uh, a set of nostrums that everybody nods when you say them but you're not actually doing the difficult work of thinking it through with people let me give you an example so i'm known as a as kind of the household guy i talk about households a lot uh, and I also note in my writing, uh, that we live in a world today that's not ordered, uh, around households as so much as it's ordered around nation states and corporations. So a lot of people will say, yeah, I see what you're getting at with regard to, to what the Bible has to say about households and how house households should be ordered. Uh, but how does that relate to my nine to five job? I mean, I have to leave the house in mm-hmm. the morning at eight and I'm not home until 630 at night. There's a whole lot of time where I'm not in my household, not interacting with my wife and kids. Maybe my wife is even heading out. Maybe we're sending our kids to daycare, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so how are we going to sort of think about the relationship between these various institutions, corporations, multinational corporations, uh, small businesses, local communities? Um, how does this all come together? Uh, it seems as though it's, it, it, there's a challenge that we need to rise to the occasion uh, uh, of meeting. So how do we retain the integrity of our households, keep the, the best things that we should not for, you know, sort of lose touch with or fail to continue, you know, keep holding on to, uh, while at the same time uh, allowing those institutions which have, that are genuinely kind of new things under the sun to do the things that they do you know, well. So, and how do we work out the tensions between these things? So what should take priority over, you know, so should we pursue profit, for example, at the expense of our households? And if not, now, how does that get worked out culturally, not just simply at a personal level? I know I can say to you, Tom, hey, it's great that you uh, didn't take that uh, opportunity to move to another state because you wanted to stay closer to your, your kid, you know, that kind of thing. That's great. Um, uh, but does that get, uh, do we talk about that in a bigger sense? 
uh, in the sense of maybe mm-hmm. how our whole culture should be thinking about these things. So this is where pastors as sort of the practitioners mm-hmm. of the faith working in the, the mm-hmm. you know, sort of the nuts and bolts and the details and the muck of life <laughs> have to be, have yeah, to be working yeah. these things out with their people. Yeah. That's just one example. I think, uh, and I could give you many more. I think you you tend to see if you read a lot of the you know what comes to mind initially is when I when I read a lot of the early church pastors and bishops and and teachers of the church and the, the church fathers you see a lot more of this stuff I mean you you see them talk, trying to talk through the manifold ways in which this stuff takes root in what's going on in in their churches and their church communities lives. Um, all the way down to you know the meaning of martyrdom, right? <laughs> um, it, it you know this this kind and you know how how to, what do you do if you have to prepare for it? I mean, in, in a world in which you know we're seeing increasingly the fact that this could this could uh, happen, you know, so we can't take for granted the same world we had yesterday in in our country. You know, um, you can you can really die for your faith just practicing it every day in your own spheres. Um, and so, I mean, those, that's one thing. I mean, that's one set of issues. But, yeah, you're right. The, the way, especially the way in which God and the nature of creation and the way to evaluate goods and the proper way of, of techne, of developing things that is for good ends versus troubling ends, I mean, those are, those are things that we do have to start finding ways to speak about in, in relation to everything, but they have been bracketed out and ignored. And I think we're starting to see the consequences of bracketing them out and, and, and being ignored. There's been good, like Glenn said, there's been good worldview work done on ways to approach it from, you know, these key categories, but I haven't seen so much that has reached down into, you know, the, the kind of rich spectrum of questions we're getting to see how this plays out in, you know, everything from, you know, how do we order our families and our lives and our jobs and our work in the environment we have right now that has fundamentally bracketed God out and, and actually is antagonistic in ways we haven't seen even, you know, I mean, it started some generations back, but it's radical now. Well, and many, many secular authorities are just fine with you helping your people get to heaven. It's just when you get into everything yeah, else yeah. that they have a problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, an, an interesting example of, of somebody who did this, I think, right, is uh, Father Robert Sirico, um, a Catholic priest. He knew enough about business and economics to recognize that the messages that he was hearing from priests in the pulpit, well, wherever they preached from, um, that the messages that he was hearing from priests giving advice to businessmen, he knew that it was nonsense. And he knew that the businessmen knew that it was nonsense. (laughs) That's right. So um, this is why uh, he, along with a couple of other people, started the Acton Institute. His specific purpose was to teach a more balanced biblical understanding of business, economics, and things like that. Now, the Acton Institute, you know, if you're, it's usually associated with the Catholic Church, well, with with Catholic thinkers. Um, Lord Acton himself was Catholic, but it had a very strong Reformed contingent for quite a while in it as well. And the interesting thing is they worked really well together 
because they both understood what the differences were between the two faiths. They both understood why those differences were really important. And because of that, they could work together. Well, if I remember, so, yeah. so you, you get a lot of really incredibly good work for that particular community coming out of Acton. Moving into other areas might be a bit more difficult to find. Yeah. Well, I think about the Acton Institute, you noted the interest there in reformed thinking. That's where I think Kuiper's entire, you know, complete, uh, all of his works have been published. So if you want the, the, yeah. the, 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 the full sort of corpus of, uh, of what has been translated into English when it comes to Kuiper, you go to the Acton Institute. Um, yeah. No, let me give you a couple of examples of, of where this uh, is also the case. You know, when, pa you know, priests or pastors get up and just, you know, parrot, you know, uh, kind of hallmark greeting card advice to their platitudes. Yeah. Their platitudes to, to businessmen and the businessmen <laughs> sit there and roll their eyes and say, this guy has no clue. He's never fired anybody in his life. Probably couldn't make a profit <laughs> if his life depended upon it. Um, that's the same thing is the case with, with other things that are of real significance. So like one of the things that really got under Aaron Wren's skin was all the bad advice pastors were giving on uh, dating and and relating to the opposite sex. Um, he said, you know, they would say dumb things like, you know, women are looking for a very pious guy who spends a lot of time in prayer. Well, maybe a little bit, but that's is that what really attracts a girl? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And so he started digging into it and actually looking into what what's really going on when when women are attracted to men and men are attracted to women. Now, he brought his Christian faith to those matters, but he wasn't just kind of uh, parroting pious platitudes uh, when it came to relating to the opposite sex. You know, there, there was just a, tons of bad advice that was being given, and that's one of the reasons why so many young Christian men turned to Jordan Peterson and, you know, and uh, Jacko Willick and all those other guys, you know, Joe Rogan, because they gave you good advice. Now, maybe not godly advice, but at least accurate in certain respects. Same thing can be said with the with the theology of violence. So one of one of the things that, you know, just occurred this last week was there was a shooting in a church in Nashville. Um, and when is the last time that, you know, a, a pastor uh, has addressed the subject of violence in a in a realistic way in a sermon. Uh, I can't think of a single instance uh, when I wasn't preaching. <laughs> you get what I'm getting at? So there are there are times to to project force, and to, then the question is to what end and how do you go about it and all these kinds of things. These are these are things that people want to know. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian and a soldier? What does it mean to be a Christian and a police officer? What does it mean to be a Christian and just simply intervene in a situation where somebody is hurting hurting somebody else physically? You know, what what are the things that we need to keep in mind as we we go about these things? So that these are ways in which my mind is sort of moving when I think about my work as a pastor. So what you're suggesting is pastors should hang out at Waffle House more. That's right. If you hang out at Waffle House, you have lots of lots of opportunity to to uh, you know uh, practice a theology of violence. <laughs> well, 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 but it is it is interesting. You think about like one in the scripture, you know, New Testament in light of Christ and Christ's teaching, Christ's Christ's uh, 
you know, um, giving us his spirit in light of the resurrection to, to live out that kind of life. But one of the things you notice is how central that Christian doctrinal theme is in the, in the emphasis of living the Christian life. I'll give you an example. Human beings made in the image of God, right? Um, when human beings are understood made in the image of God, you get a rich um, field Maybe that's not even the best term. There's a rich, um, there's a, let me think of the best way to put this. There is a lot of things that the image of God covers that can't be just put in an easy classificatory order. One of the complicated issues is the way in which the fallen rebellious sinner who has not embraced Christ is still to be related to as one in the image of God in some sense. Now, I don't need to go through all the different theologies there, but look at how the ethic is, is that, that, that we don't get to erase that image, right? We don't get to just will that image away. And even as Christians, seeing them rejecting Christ, we don't get to treat them in a way as though. So love your enemies. I mean, that is a radical difference than, you know, I mean, it's radical. I mean, Christ even said, it's easy to say, you know, love the people that agree with you and, and, and not those, you know, that don't. Love your groupthink people and hate, you know, the others. But here's one that tells you to love your enemies. And of course, bound up with that is to speak the truth in that love right? You still speak the truth, but that is a very, that, that is something we still have to teach people in our congregations what it looks like, especially when violence could legitimately be the consequence of speaking truth and love. Um, and and that, is a, that forms a different character of people um, than people that are just going to enter the competition of power through, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Well, that's that's certainly uh, an important matter to keep in mind. Uh, but again, it doesn't answer the question: When do I throw a punch? Now, <laughs> in other words, there there is a there is a moment yeah. to throw a punch, uh, are, yeah. unless we're pacifists. Well, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, so I, that, that will get into it. But I don't think it. I don't think it erases. I mean, the doctrinal point is is not an erasure of the Im- image of God in the one you may have to punch, right? <laughs> um, and, well, and I think that is key. Yeah, and I think, but but here, here's the thing that maybe people don't sort of uh, see as even a possible, a possibility. Uh, perhaps throwing the punch is the way I love my enemy. Yeah, yeah. Are there conditions under which yeah. that would be the case? So, um, for example, let's say, um, it was in my power to prevent this girl from killing some people at uh, the church in Nashville. And, and uh, it could entail uh, such a high degree of uh, uh, violence being employed by me that it kills her. How could that be understood as love? Well, I think it could be understood as love in a range of ways, obviously, for the people that who yeah. aren't harmed because you've taken yeah. uh, the, you know, what was, you know, the, you had, you did the thing that was necessary to prevent her from uh, harming more people, but yeah. even her preventing her from yeah. continuing to sin evil. is an act yeah. of love. Yeah. 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 Keeping Absolutely. her from yeah. Yeah. doing more, more evil. Aquinas put just war theory under the doctrine of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and he, he actually discusses the issue of homicidal self-defense in there. Mm -hmm. And his argument is, I forgot the exact terminology for it, but basically, since in that situation, your intention, your goal is not the person's death. It's not to kill the person. It is to defend yeah. the people from her. That makes it ethically sound. If you were going at it simply to kill her, if that is your what what is primary in your yeah. mind, then it's a sin. Yeah. But if it if your yeah. your goal is actually to defend others, um, if yeah. if that is the if that is what is necessary to defend other people's lives, then it's then it's a legitimate action. And I think that people yeah. in our churches really want us to uh, engage in these kinds of matters and questions. Yeah. Because these are the things, so, you know, if we think about, say, your work, Tom, as a theologian, um, you're uh, working with pastors uh, who are, you know, often, yeah. very often people who are, at, you know, training to, to work as pastors. And what, um, you know, the, the pastors ought to be doing is sort of the practical work when it comes to discipleship of how does this all work out? I mean... This is God's world. Uh, God uh, governs it and still sustains it. And we're here uh, as his creatures to glorify him. What does it mean to glorify him in these very challenging conditions, yeah. you know, uh, where, where we're having to make these yeah. kinds of distinctions? One of the things I, I do in the uh, current class I teach is kind of uh, Christian ethics and social issues. And one of the things, the first part of what I do is, of course, I, I, I set forth the theological frame. God is first truth in the nature of creation, um, ends, purposes, the good, you know, uh, the true character of, of things, then the fall and, and the redemptive work. Um, and then I compare it with these alternatives that are out there. But then the, the, their exercise as, as ministers is case studies. They have to do three reflection papers basically on actual episodes in which there is a moral dilemma in which they're going to have to figure out a way to draw on this. And of course, you can't come up with every combination, but I really prefer them. I often tell them, come up with real life situations in your church or in your life, rather than just a textbook example. You can do a textbook example, but do something that's as complicated as it's, there's, you've got a family in your church confronting this issue. That way it forces them to start having to think about real situations and how, the, how, to, how to integrate and, and build a wisdom bank for addressing those, those hard, rough-edged rough -edged issues. Yeah, I've had to face a number of those things over the course of the ministry that I've been engaged in in different settings. Many of them when I was involved in urban ministry and almost nothing uh, that I got in seminary was really all that <laughs> helpful. Uh, and, and it was because yeah. there were certain assumptions made uh, about the kind of things I would be facing. So, for example, I never met a... I never I met a person who was asking for a handout who was telling me the truth. This is like mm -hmm. the truth. <laughs> I, I had hundreds of them <laughs> and they were all liars. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so what, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with yeah. the fact that sometimes, not just sometimes, but very often uh, the person who's on the side of the road when you're the good Samaritan 
is also a crook. So you, you walk, so, you know, here, you know, you've got the, you know, the story of the good Samaritan and he's on his way, uh, you know, uh, along, you know, he passes along the road, you know, the, and he finds this uh, person who's been beaten. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful parable. Uh, the guy uh, was absolutely innocent and he was accosted and uh, the good Samaritan does what the other folks failed to do. But uh, I literally have dozens of stories, dozens where I came across a guy who was in that situation. And when I, sh- when I walk up to him, he rolls over and has a gun and says, stick him up. Now, not literally, but that's what yeah. he was up to. He was out to get me. He was out to take advantage of my compassion, my mercy, my interest in his life. He did not want to do anything with what I was about to give him in a, in a good way. He wanted maybe some money. Uh, he maybe wanted, uh, yeah. you know, a little bit of, uh, food or whatever, but he was up to something else. So that's the kind of yeah. thing yeah. that, um, you know, I'm getting at, uh, this is particularly a sore point yeah. for me because, you know, I, I, I dealt with that so often. Um, I can give you story after story after story and they're yeah. horrific, <laughs> but yeah. I've never come across anybody, um, who's kind of like, stepping up to that challenge of, of addressing that particular problem. But that's just, it's just an example. Well, I mean, that's part of the complicatedness. And I think also the, the, the dimension of the need for wisdom and, and why you can't just take blanket, even scripture verses and just apply them directly to every episode. Um, because what you do is you can cause things far worse. I'll give you an example. Let's say that I go to help somebody on the side of the road, which is in Christian love. That person murders me. I can't support my child or wife anymore or in the ways that I do and everything else. So so you're, here is a wisdom moment where is it the right thing to do at this time? Whereas if you know what, you know. Maybe I, I'm not someone who can even help this person at this point, or maybe it's right for me not to check or should, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into a thought. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing if you, you have, you know, minimal consequences if you're harmed, right? Um, and, and you're willing to. Um, and again, this isn't, this isn't questioning doing that. It's saying that it's a lot, the, the, the moral details can be very thick. And, and I, I know another example locally, I won't name names, but there was a person who was kind-hearted to let uh, this female and the mother stay in their home because, and get on their feet. And they end up calling the police on this person and saying, basically changing the locks and taking over his home. He had to spend astronomical amounts of money in court to get his own home back and get them out. And they're still calling the police on him for different things. And so, you know, here's a person who reached out, gave people a free place to stay, and they wanted to basically take his whole place and have him arrested. Um, I've come across you know, I've come across that. something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you just yeah. You, you're just telling a story that I I have a, a direct experience that's exactly the same story. Wow. Yeah. So uh, um, now now getting getting to uh, Bitcoin because <laughs> that's what got me thinking about this, this whole subject. <laughs> that's where we were going so, all along. <laughs> <laughs> so what what does a pastor have to say at all about uh, you know monetary matters? Uh, obviously, there are things in Scripture that address the subject of money, 
and that and they're challenging in the sense that you know we're given warnings about it. Uh, but at the same time, we don't actually have an origin st- a story in Scripture for money. In other words, it just shows up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you read Genesis, there's a, there's a point where you say, ah, the first money. <laughs> you know, and it, and it, but it's just kind of there, and uh, you know, you kind of have to deal with it. Um, so it's part of human, you know, culture. In fact, it's one of the things that makes uh, sophisticated and, and highly developed cultures possible. If you don't have it, if everything is just kind of like a small scale uh, economic cooperation, you just never get to cities and great works of architecture and stuff like that, or large scale farming or anything. So uh, money is really uh, important uh, in that respect. But then, uh, you know, how do we think about that as Christians? Uh, what is it? Uh, how should be? How should we think about it? Uh, how should we take this thing that has uh, the potential for good, but also the potential for lots of other things, uh, and put it to use? These are the things I'm thinking about as a pastor and as a person who's uh, seeking to to bring all things uh, into subjection. Uh, and uh, glorify God, even with Bitcoin. Um, and I think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, here's a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, where does it say that government is the only entity that can issue money? Right. It doesn't say that. that is, that's not actually a scriptural principle. Right. Um, as near it, as it, I it, can it, tell. Yeah. I think a scripture, I mean, heart, the heart of scripture, something a mouse, the sociologist had come up with is gift ex- exchange. Gift exchange is very central to the gift character of creation, human so- social relations and cultural relationships. And, and the monetary is bound up with that. So, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. The government doesn't have, uh, if anything, it's not a gift relationship, uh, our, our relation to the government, but they want us to believe it to be so. Yeah. And then take it a step further. Um, When the government inflates the money supply, just creates the Fed creates money out of nowhere. Money is a at at its root. It's a a uh, it's it's a medium of value, basically. Mm -hmm. But when the money supply inflates, what the government is doing is taking value away from your money. That's called theft. Right. You know, so a lot of what is happening in terms of our fundamental economic policy, even with the Fed's concept that we want to keep inflation at 2%, what they're saying is we want to erode the value of your money by 2% every year. Yeah, just we want it to be slower. Um, it, than- <laughs> it, you know, and that, that's if they could actually reach that. Right. Um, so... One of the things we need to think about is how does biblical ethics apply in the larger scale area of economics, particularly in with government. And then once we have some kind of a sense of that, we can start looking at things like alternatives. Yeah, I think alternative repositories of value. Yeah, I think that's right, Glenn. I think. Uh, Again, you know, as you noted earlier, Tom, wisdom is a huge component uh, in all of this. So what I think was the occasion, and this is, again, just kind of an assumption based on how things have worked themselves out, is it wasn't as though governments were the first to steal 
uh, value from other people. What the governments did is they came in uh, initially to regulate things so that so as to protect the interests of, of uh, par- you know parties and transactions and of weights and measures stuff. But then when the monopoly is in place, then you can play all sorts of fun games with the money supply yeah. uh, because now. Uh, the only money that people trust is the one that has the stamp on it uh, that is issued by the government. Um, yeah, it's a problem with fiat currencies. Right. So anyway, this, is, uh, this has been a fun conversation. We've kind of ambled about a bit. Uh, but the, I think the, uh, the sort of the underlying uh, you know, uh, thing I was pursuing with bringing the subject up is what gives me the right to talk about uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I guess my, my point is, is that if anybody has the right to talk about anything, it's the one who uh, is representing the creator. Now, it doesn't mean that that everyone who's speaking for the creator is is doing a good job. I'm not I'm not trying to say that, <laughs> but but at least you have the right to to address the subject, because really, when it comes to creation, and God's authority over it. And if you're the spokesman for God, or at least attempting to speak for God, everything is in sight. Everything is a legitimate subject for you to address. Uh, again, like I said, with the caveat, you may not do it very well. <laughs> yeah, Chris, what I would appeal to scripturally for that is Ephesians 4. Um, God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But what is the work of ministry? Scripturally, everything we do is ministry. It is supposed to be done in service of others. Right. So your job as a pastor is to equip people to do the ministry, the service that they are called to do. Yeah. Yeah, and then that means uh, very often having to use money. <laughs> anyway, uh, we we appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast, and, and we congratulate you for getting to the end of the show. As I, I noted earlier, the uh, uh, Bitcoin conference, thank God for Bitcoin, is coming up. And I'd like to just finish uh, with a description of the conference so that uh, if you're interested in attending, you know what it's all about. So... Uh, Let me just take you to a statement here that I received from one of the organizers of the event. So uh, throughout history, God has used decentralized innovations as a means uh, to bring about the end of wickedness and suffering all over the world. And that gets us to what we were talking about just a moment ago about decentralized approaches to the development and exchange of money. But uh, we have in this particular instance with Bitcoin, uh, the founder of the Thank God for Bitcoin conference is a former church planter uh, who worked in Uruguay and experienced firsthand the effect of currency devaluation in the lives of Venezuelan immigrants who fled their country after watching their money become worthless before their very eyes. Thank God for Bitcoin exists to help Christians understand what Bitcoin is, why it matters, and the many surprising ways that it is being used for the glory of God and the good of people everywhere. Join us in Miami, May 16th and 17th. So that's the, that's a correction. I said 15th and 16th, but it's actually the 16th and 17th for the Thank God for Bitcoin 23 conference. I'm one of the speakers, but there are a number of other speakers who are uh, going to be there uh, representing uh, different 
facets of the Bitcoin industry. Tickets are available at TGFB, TGFB.com, uh, including a live stream option for those who would like to join, who can't join, I should say, in person and use the code PUGCAST to get 15% off your ticket. Anyway, with all of that said, and with the reminder that the link is in the show notes, bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon.